you remember the book? Uh, it was published a while ago. It was called Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? You remember hearing that before? Well, maybe you know the name of R.C. Sproul, but someone asked him uh, one time, you know, why do good things happen or bad things happen to good people? And he said, well, actually, I haven't met any good people yet, so I don't know. Now, that's a little cheeky of a response, but, uh, but his point is, is helpful. And I don't say that uh, Harold Kushner's book uh, is unhelpful in its title. Uh, there is something, there's some things that do happen to us that are bigger than ourselves. Uh, but there is also truthfulness to what R.C. said. Uh, you know, um, there is sometimes consequence for our own foolish and sinful actions, uh, the last few weeks, we've been talking through Hebrews and seeing the church suffering for persecution at no fault of their own. And so, it's really interesting now in chapter 12 that the writer starts to change his focus and begins to look at suffering that we sometimes experience because of choices that we have personally made. And so, it's important for us to think about this the same Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, he didn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for foolishness sake. There is sometimes suffering that we experience because we have made uh, wrong choices. And so that's the essence of the, the idea of the sermon this morning is that some trials we experience are our own making. And we have to understand that and accept it, and own it, and understand our relationship to God as sons. Now, I said that the book title, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? It's helpful to some degree, because there is a point in which we do go about life, and we experience a trial, and they often do. They take us by surprise. We, we don't expect them to come. All trials that are put in our path, are designed to draw us closer to God, and so we ought not shortchange a trial. We need to work through that trial to be able to receive the benefit of the trial, even if it's something that we have inadvertently created by our own actions, not knowing the ramifications. And in this paragraph that we're looking at this morning, there is a warning to true believers that if they do fail to obey God's Word, that they should expect that God would intervene and allow hardship to draw us back to Himself. Every moral choice that we make has a consequence. Life is full of choices, and when we make some choices, we're going to feel some of the pain of those choices. And so, discipline, I think we need to understand, is not God's way of saying, I'm through with you. It's God's way of saying, I want you to return to me. It's an act of God to lovingly make your way hard so that you remember the good days that you had in obedience to your Heavenly Father. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God whispers in our pleasures he speaks to us in our work, and He shouts to us in our pain. Maybe you've heard that before. But there's a lot of truth to that, and we all experience that, and we need to remember that some trials we experience are our own making. So, this text, I believe, works into two, two points. 
verses 3 through 4, I see here the author challenging us to know, to, to struggle against sin, and we have to do this by faith. We have to consider our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and recognize that He also struggled against sin. Let me just read verses 3 and 4 again. It says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, we started this chapter looking at the sin which so easily clings to us. It hangs on to us. Verse 4, there's a change in the way he talks about sin. It's talking about sin now as an enemy that's out to destroy us. We are struggling against sin as if we're fighting a mortal uh, battle to the death. And we have to recognize that sin is not our friend. It's out to destroy us like a person who is maybe caught underwater. Maybe you've seen some sort of film or movie and you've seen somebody stuck underneath of the water and they're like gassed, they're struggling to get up, but there's something that's caught around their ankle that's keeping them from getting to the surface. And, the, I, and you, 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 you feel for that person, right? And you're like, I could feel myself. And you, maybe you've had dreams of this happening. Where, and then you see the person shake off that cord or whatever that's holding and they rise to the surface and they're gasping for breath. That's the idea that, that, is, that the writer here is communicating us with how we think about sin. Sin is not there to help us to have a great life. It actually comes and hurts us as believers. Uh, one old Puritan put it this way, that you should be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You know, the natural man doesn't see sin the way that Christians see sin. And that's why I use the word faith. By faith, we have to struggle against sin. And faith obviously comes out of chapter 11. We, as people who are of a new world, have a perspective about sin that's different from those of the world, the natural people. We also know that the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. It can cause us to to not see sin properly, so we have to believe with the, with the heart what God tells us about sin, and we have to see sin as a horrific evil that's out to destroy us. But to do this, we also know that we can take encouragement in Jesus Christ. We can take encouragement in Jesus Christ and His endurance. We can take encouragement in His blood that He shed for us. And I see in verse 3 particularly considering the endurance of Jesus, as it says there, consider him who endured. Jesus endured much, much suffering for sinners. And I think that we as Christians, we come, become very accustomed to the cross in such a way that we, it loses some of that initial impact. And we need to remember that the suffering of Christ was agonizing it was painful, 
And we need to look at it with a profound respect for what He endured for us. One historian, in reflection upon the crucifixion, said that crucifixion was a punishment in which the caprice and sadism of the executioner was given full reign. See, the indignities that Christ experienced on the cross for us were such that it, the executioner was satisfying a primal lust for sadism and just destruction upon another person. What happens, what happens when you watch a, uh, I don't know, Private Ryan or some, some, sort, of, some sort of movie that, that like highlights the, the brutality that ha- occurred in the World War II? What hap- I, I know what happens in my heart whenever I watch something that, along the lines of World War II and the suffering that our forefathers experienced. I have a profound respect for that generation that comes up, and it wells within my heart. And so the author here is trying to encourage us. Think about what Christ experienced. Deepen your respect for Him and recognize that whatever suffering you're personally experiencing is it's, it's, it's painful, but, but by no means is it on the order in which the Son of God experienced. We have to recognize and take courage, though, that Christ endured through that experience so that we don't grow faint-hearted, don't grow weary. We can take courage in the blood of Christ, verse 4. Notice that the author assumes that we're, we're still breathing when we're reading this. We're, 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 we've struggled against sin, but we're not actually, um, we're, we're not dead. We're not in the tomb. We're not buried. What's verse 4 say? What does it say? You're still struggling against sin. You know, you might be fighting in your own heart and life the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and feeling as though you should just forget this whole thing. Why is it even worth trying? Well, the author's saying here, if you're still breathing, don't quit your fight for your marriage if you feel as though it's on the rocks. Don't quit fighting for the purity of eyes and heart and hands. Don't quit fighting the desire to just kind of be mediocre or to, to just be lazy. No, we, we need to take courage in the blood of Jesus Christ. We haven't resisted to the point in which our own life's blood has been poured out. Jesus' lifeblood has been poured out for us. You know, Jesus never said that the Christian life would be easy. You know, when I was a young boy and I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, I was maybe four years old. I had no idea what would be coming along in terms of cost of discipleship. And that's often the case that when children accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior when they're like a young'un, they, don't, they can't anticipate the cost of discipleship. They have really no idea what's going to 
what it's going to cost them. And so what often happens is when children grow up and they get up to teenage year, young adult life, and they go off to college, there's many that slip away because they haven't accurately considered the cost of discipleship, of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, I've seen parents do the same thing. I have seen parents who have raised their children in church, and they have been a part of the body. They've been out to Bible studies. They've been out to Sunday school. They've been out to Awana on Wednesday nights, and yet then when the kids are out of the house, it's like they slip away, and they haven't really properly considered the cost of following Christ. Now, I share these things because they're real elements, and when we consider the cost of following the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be considering what we're being called to. We're being called to give up our life. We're being called to, if necessary, let our blood pour out and be strong and resist the temptation to slip away. Now, we need to be not a people of fear. We need to be a people of courage. And I do believe that when you look at the blood of Christ, you look at those who have suffered great things for us, your heart is encouraged. Now, I bring these up not to condemn our hearts, but to remind us that we have a great Heavenly Father who wants us to succeed as much as His Son has succeeded, and He gives us the grace to be able to do so. But we need to know evidence is Evidence is, excuse me, endurance is the evidence of faith. It is evidence, and endurance is important. Now, we do struggle by, we do struggle with sin by faith, but I want us to see now in the last half of this, verses 5 to 11, that by faith we also accept our relationship with God, our sonship, our sonship. Verse 5 through 11, I'm not going to read each of these verses again necessarily. I'll just read verses 5 through 6. It says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproving Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Several years ago, I, I did give a message on a Father's Day from the book of Proverbs. It was called Wise Words from Dad. And this two verses come from the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 8. And there's a very affectionate tone in the book of Proverbs of a father speaking to a son and, and commending him in a way that would encourage him to be successful in life. And so here, the, the conversation of father to a son, uh, the author is lifting that and helping us to realize that this is not just a figurative thing, but this is, this is like, this is how you relate to your heavenly father, your spiritual father. He treats you as if, as you treat your children, and so you ought to have the same kind of profound respect for his discipline. Look at verse uh, 4, excuse me, verse 5. He, he, he gives us, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 7, I apologize, verse 7. 
he, he gives us two applications that come from this observation from Proverbs. He says, first of all, it is for discipline that you have to endure. That's an application that comes out of this book of Proverbs. And the second one is, he says, God is treating you as sons. And then the rest of what he says is basically explanation of these two applications. He's, he's breaking down the word for us. And so, I want to show you the application that discipline provides for us as Christians and followers of Jesus. The first application here is that discipline illustrates a new covenant with the Father. It shows that we have relationship with Him. It shows that we have relationship. Now, there was a man that I heard about who came up to two boys who were fighting in the park. I don't know if it was Honesdale, I don't know where it was. But they were fighting in the park. He took one aside and he began to spank him. He spanked him for his inappropriate behavior. And one observing bystander came up to the, to the guy and said, why didn't you deal with the other? And he said to him, well, actually, it's because this one is my son and that's not my son. Now, whether we agree or not with corporal punishment, we would all agree, perhaps, the necessity of giving instruction and giving correction to our children. There's different relationship that I have with, say, you know, the Zausch's kids or the 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 uh, you know the Yakley's kids. I don't I don't communicate the same relationship if I see them acting out, and they never act out. Those kids never act out. But it's just, we, we, we have a different way of relating. And here's the point. We don't discipline children who are not our own. And in this way, discipline illustrates that we're in a close union, a covenantal union in which the Holy Spirit has taken residence within our hearts so that discipline defines our relationship with God. It sets the boundaries. And why is discipline appropriate for a father and not a stranger? Think about that for a moment. If we see discipline occurring a stranger to a child, we would call that abuse, wouldn't we? But it's not abuse when it's done within a context of love and respect in which there's security and there's knowing that my father has the best interest for me as a child. You can take the discipline better in that case, and it has an intended result. See, in verse 9, he says that uh, we had fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. So that's the context in which this occurs. And so we have a, a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's based upon a new and better covenant. You think about the argument of the book of Hebrews. We have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's built upon the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing can separate us from His love. We, we, we won't be expelled from the camp. We will not be removed from the people of God. We are settled and secure. It's theirs and ours forever. And so when we are disciplined by the Father of spirits, as it says here, his intention is not to destroy us. His intention is to draw us closer to Himself. 
God knows sin is horrific. God knows that sin is what sent His own Son to the cross. He wants you to experience fullness of life. Sin ends in death. He wants you to shake sin off your foot, just like that drowning person in the water. Now, your Heavenly Father may let you chase sin for a while, but you know that your experience with sin will not bring any joy or peace. It will actually cause you anxiety within your heart to such an extent that you, you look for that peace again. This is a good moment just to encourage parents with young children. Man, I'm so thankful I'm getting to that age where I'm, not, I'm able to maybe encourage <laughs> those who are still in the trenches. Uh, you know, it's so important to be consistent with discipline. You need to be consistent, but I want to encourage you. Sometimes parents will look at their own um, discipline patterns and think that they're not consistent enough. Now, there could be cases where we're not consistent as we ought to be, but if you're like eight out of ten, you're doing pretty good, and I want to encourage you. That's, that's, I would say that that's pretty consistent. If you're down in the twos and threes, that's a little bit different. But if you parents tend to be hardest upon themselves. But be of good cheer. This doesn't, does go away after a while. But, I, but if you're in those moments of needing to, to give those painful reminders, some of our children, some of our children, they, they hear our voice and they respond. There are some children who, who don't, they hear our voice, but they don't respond, and they need some sort of, like, association of, like, pain to be able to associate in a positive direction that they don't want to have those experiences of pain. And we have to, we have, to have wisdom and know which child is going to take that better than others, and so we have to recognize uh, that we also do this in a context of love. Otherwise, it can become abusive, we have to, we have to hug our children and let them know that we love them and will always accept them back into relationship with us. We need them to know that. Each child is different, but by faith we believe God's Word and we apply the rod of correction uh, with wisdom and with care, and we do so as we love our children and help them to avoid the sinful choices uh, that will ultimately hurt them. So it's important. So just uh, that was a little of a side for parents, and I just know how important it is um, also to be encouraged that consistency, we can beat ourselves up. Uh, but if you're 8 and 10, you're probably doing pretty good. So keep, keep up the good work. But discipline, I think, also helps us understand the relationship with the Father, Yes, it, it, it shows us that illustration of the Father, but it also, it's designed to draw us into a closer union, a deeper union with the Father. Verses 10 and 11 show us this. I'll read these verses. It says in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later 
it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How does discipline draw us into a deeper relationship with God? Well, it allows us to appreciate the holiness of God. We share, it says in verse 10, His holiness. And it's further further defined as the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Why would we draw close to God if we had dirty hands? We wouldn't. Impurity makes us want to avoid and hide from God. You think about this pandemic and wearing of masks in society causes us to feel psychologically awkward around other people. You put that into context of actual sin, that's the relationship strain that you experience with God. When you are are not being devoted to Him, you're being devoted to yourself, and sin causes separation between us and God. Notice here that the illustration is of the father and son again used and how the father, earthly father, disciplines us as it seemed best to them. Isn't that the way it goes? I mean, when we were the recipients of parental discipline, we often didn't understand why our parents disciplined us, right? Did we understand every single time why dad did what he did or mom did what she did? No. How many have us said to our kids or have heard it said to us, when you have kids, you'll understand, right? Truthfully, there are some times when parents don't have a logical explanation, and sometimes, frankly, it is to keep quiet and order in the house, and that's not wrong. There might not necessarily be anything wrong with jumping over the couch, per se, I mean, it's not a moral problem, but what it does is it creates peace and tranquility for the parents. (laughs) And those rules are not in and of themselves moral issues. And they serve to benefit the parent. And that might frustrate us as youngins growing up. But notice what the text says here is that while we may have had parents like that, we can have the confidence that whatever discipline God applies to our life, He does it for our good. He does it for our benefit. Our God is a good and loving God, and He gives us what we need to get our attention and to change us so that we might have that peaceable fruit of righteousness in our hearts. Holiness of life is something that would fill our hearts with no regret. We don't want to get later into our life and feel like I should never have done X, Y, or Z. If God prevents us from getting to those places, it's ultimately for our good. He wants us to have emotional stability. He wants us to have the peace and the joy, the fruit of righteousness in our hearts. No discipline, it says here, is pleasant, but it yields a quietness of the soul. It yields peace. Peace is not just the cessation of 
hostilities. It's a positive state of mind which, which delights in doing well by other people. And so we get trained in how to live our life in relationship to other people. Sin creates a ripple in our souls. It, it is not only a breaking of God's law, it is also a distortion of how God means us to be in life. And when we sin, we reap, benefit, we reap the horrors of a lack of peace, a lack of emotional stability in our hearts and lives. What might... So, there's a really interesting phrase here. He, he talks about how how that we don't like, we, we want to, no one likes the discipline, but we need to allow the discipline to create its intended work. So we do sin. How is it that the endurance through the consequences of our sin creates a peaceable soul within ourselves? Let's put this in a context of relationship for a moment. Let's say that you've said something that's deeply hurtful to a family member. Deeply hurtful. And I know that we've all done this. I've done this. I've said things to I've said things to Abby that I should never ever have said. And rightfully so, we experience the pain of like feeling isolated from our loved one. We feel like we will never be restored. Things will never, ever be as they used to be. That's a consequence of sin. I'm not treating the other as they should be treated. What would be a short changing of that discipline would be avoiding reconciliation. Avoiding the hard task of sitting down and listening to the other person tell you how much that hurt them. That's painful. It's, it's very painful. If I sit there and have to endure all of this, I have to eat humility. I have to own my sin. That's painful. And what most people do is they avoid the discipline that they rightfully inherited. And so it's so important for us that we, instead of avoiding that disciplinary moment, embrace it, push through it, because when we get to the other side, then we will know that we have reunion with the one we have hurt. It's the same way vertically with our Heavenly Father. So often we, we remove ourselves when we are experiencing the pain of sin. We, we, we don't come to the assembly. We don't, we, don't, um, we don't pick up the Scriptures. We avoid. We, it's the same thing. We have to own our sin and come to our Heavenly Father so that we might be trained, trained in the godly fruits of righteousness. You know, when a person recognizes that you understand fully how your words or your actions have hurt them, they will 
be more willing to receive you to themselves again. They will forgive you and allow you to experience unity of relationship again. And so, again, just in summary here of this text, some trials that we experience are of our own making. And so we, by faith, we struggle against sin. And by faith, we accept the sonship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Now, not everyone is a fan of tough love. But you know what? The most famous story in all the Scripture rises and falls on tough love. The story of the prodigal son. You have a son who looked at his father and said, I want my inheritance now. I want it now. I don't want to wait until you die. I want it now. Dad, you're just as good as debt to me. But his father, with remarkable patience, gave him his inheritance early. And you know the story. He went out, he spent it, and there was famine. And he was starting to reap the consequence of his own actions. And in a moment of, of reckoning, while he's feeding the pigs, he's wanting to eat what the pigs are eating, and in that moment, he comes to his senses. What would have happened if a church lady offered him a place to eat, a place to stay, and he had not gone through that experience of tough love? He would not have come to his senses. And so we know how the story flows. He experiences that tough realization, I did this, I have to own it, and he goes to his heavenly father, or he goes to his earthly father, and his father's waiting there looking for him, and he receives him again. You know, that's the beauty of our great God, is that while he allows us to experience at times the consequences of sin, he's always there to receive us again. It's a context of covenantal love. He doesn't turn his back upon us. He's there to receive us again to himself. And so, I want to encourage you. Yes, some trials are of our own making. But we have a heavenly father who will receive us as he receives his own son. So, I want to encourage you. Examine your own heart this morning. Have we been covering sins that, that we need to deal with personally and, and to, to walk through those painful conversations with people, people that we do love? And are we assuming that just because we're in a relationship with them and they can't get out of that relationship because we're married, that we don't have to deal with some of these things? We need to deal with relational issues in our own hearts and lives and with those that we love. Some of the trials we experience are of our own making, but we have a gracious God, and He will train our hearts so that we can have peace in our lives again. Let's pray.